I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about the liturgy of the Mass. Or I guess not exactly a conversation this time, because for some deranged reason, I've decided to do this as a solo pod. Welcome to all of our listeners, welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon, and welcome, at least, to our producer, Joe Barnes. Even though I don't have someone sitting second chair today, my hope is that producer Joe can at least interrupt me from time to time to add his insights and questions and to give you a break from the sound of my voice. Joe, how are we doing? We're doing great. Very good. Good to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I feel like we should give some full disclosure to our listeners. We had another episode all lined up to record for this month, but due to some last minute scheduling conflicts, which, mea maxima culpa, were entirely my fault, we're going to have to defer that one to July. But I promise our listeners it will be worth the wait. So today, producer Joe proposed that in place of that, maybe I would go ahead and record something on the liturgy of the Mass, and especially what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about that liturgy. So this past week, this past Thursday, I completed my licentiate in sacred theology over here in Rome at the Angelicum, and this ended up being the topic of my final lecture, what's called my Lexio Corum, after which I am licensed to teach theology in major seminaries. So I'm also going to be giving this talk here in a couple weeks at Pro Civitate Dei in France. Um, so if any of our listeners will be joining us over in Lalande this year for PCD, I would recommend maybe skipping this episode, or else you're going to be very bored when I give this over there. You might be very bored anyway, but apologies in advance. All right. So this topic today, St. Thomas Aquinas and the Liturgy. When I gave this as, you know, an academic lecture this week, I gave it the title, St. Thomas Aquinas Mystagogue, The Rites of the Mass in the Sentences Commentary and Summa Theologiae. And when I give it in a more kind of popular setting here in a couple weeks, I told our friend Gladden that he can put it on the schedule as just to mystagogy, to mystic mystagogy. No, get it? Got it. Good. Great. Um, I don't know what we're going to title this episode yet, but the basic idea is that St. Thomas Aquinas um, actually has a lot to say about all the little details in the liturgy of the mass. And I thought I might start today on this podcast, just with a little bit of apologetics for this, um, because I feel like even among the great listeners of the Josiah's podcast, um, like so many people today, this topic may come as a little bit of a surprise in as much as I think we think of Thomistic theology and philosophy off on one side as a kind of, you know, very highfalutin, abstract uh, discipline that thankfully is seeing a bit of a renaissance right now, but concerned with things like essay, right? The act of being or substantial form or infused habitus or whatever. And then over on the other side, I'm using these great hand motions right now, which is great in a visual medium like podcasting. Uh, over on the other side, we have liturgical mystagogy um, or the kind of mystical reflection on the meaning of the sacramental rites. And that's maybe something that we see in the Church Fathers, um, Ambrose, Cyril of Jerusalem, Dionysius the Areopagite. And it's something that, you know, got some attention in the liturgical movement 100 years ago. 
but seems very different than what we think of as Thomism. Um, so both of these things are out there. Both of these things are in the church, but never the two shall they meet. And I want to suggest that, no, that's, that's not actually true. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas is incredibly liturgically informed and liturgically interested. And if today we don't associate that with St. Thomas, I think that tells us more about some of the priorities of contemporary Thomism than maybe it does about St. Thomas himself. And to dispose you to believe me on that, um, I'd like to give you just three little data points here today that might surprise you about St. Thomas and the liturgy. So did you know, first of all, that the longest question in the entire Summa Theologiae is the question on the meaning of the ceremonial rites in the Old Covenant? This is Prima Secundae question 102. By far the longest question in the Summa. It's not even close. It goes on for pages and pages and pages, and it's effectively St. Thomas Aquinas' commentary on the book of Leviticus. Okay, that was data point number one. Number two, did you know that the question of the Summa Theologiae, with the most articles in it, is the question on prayer? So this is in the Secunda Secundae, in the treatment of religion within the larger treatise on justice, um, and it's question 83 there of the Secunda Secundae. All right, last data point to get you to believe me. Did you know that the article of the Summa with the most objections, or at least tied for the most objections, is the article on what can go wrong in the celebration of Holy Mass? Tertia Pars 83.6. So St. Thomas himself seems to have given a lot of space, a lot of time and energy, to the contemplation of the liturgical rites. And in his organization of the Summa Theologiae, this is how he brings to a conclusion his treatment of the Holy Eucharist, which is the last full treatment we have in the Summa Theologiae. You might know the story of St. Nicholas Day, 1273. St. Thomas Aquinas had this mystical vision while he was um, celebrating the Holy Mass. And after that, he never really wrote again. At least he never got into a habit of writing again. Um, and so the next treatise or treatment within the Summa on penance, he began but didn't finish. So the Eucharist is the last thing that he fully treated. And this is how he brought that treatment to a conclusion. Now, some people might look at that and say, okay, well, that means that this is an afterthought for him. It's the last question in the treatment of the Eucharist uh, on the right of the Eucharist. So therefore, he's not that interested in it. But again, if you compare its length to any of the questions on, you know, the real presence or transubstantiation or the mode of Christ's presence in the sacrament or the accidents in the Eucharist um, and the matter and the words and the minister and the effects, all the different things that we think about when we think about the theology of the Holy Eucharist, St. Thomas gives this at least as much space, if not more space than all of those. So this seems like something that we Thomas may not have cared about all that much, at least most Thomas. Uh, in recent years, just haven't gotten to this part of St. Thomas. But I want to suggest that there's a lot here, not just for, you know, academics, for philosophers and theologians to to get into, or, you know, ritualists and liturgists, God help us, um, but also that there's something here for all of us, for all Catholics, who still assist at these holy mysteries on at least a weekly basis, to learn from St. Thomas Aquinas, to learn from the common doctor of Holy Church, 
um, who Holy Mother Church holds up for us as the great teacher, um, he might have something to teach us about this too. All right. So today, there's kind of more here than I'm adequately going to be able to cover in a podcast, to say the least. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I've got a hard out in about an hour because at my parish here in Rome, we have First Vespers of Trinity Sunday, which is the patronal feast of the parish, uh, the title of the parish, Santissima Trinita. And tonight we also have the blessing of a new choir organ there. So I will give you what I can give you over the course of the next 60 minutes or so, and then I will sprint across a very hot and overly stuffed with tourist uh, Roman Saturday afternoon, and we'll go from there. All right. So diving into the meat of this a little bit, um, I'll have Joe post an outline that I've got um, that would help you follow along a little here if you wanted something to look at. Um, But I'll try to kind of signpost as I go to where you also don't need that if you're listening in your car, etc. But just to say it off the bat, there's four texts that I'm drawing from when I talk about St. Thomas on the rites of the Mass. There's two texts in the Sentences, which is his first major work. It's kind of like his doctoral dissertation. And then there's two texts in the Summa Theologiae. They're at the end of his life, like I said. So the two texts in the Sentences commentary are both in the fourth book of the Sentences. One is the Expositio Textus of Distinction 8. The other is the Expositio Textus of Distinction 12. And then within the Summa Theologiae, like I said, we're hanging out in the Tertia Pars in question 83, and we're going to be in Article 4 and Article 5. And basically what these texts are, so from the beginning of his career, and from the end of his career, in both places, once we have a treatment of all of the words of the Mass, so everything that is said around this sacrament, and then in the other place, we have a treatment of the gestures or actions, the things done in the celebration of this sacrament. And I'm not going to worry for our purposes today about, oh, did St. Thomas change his mind or his emphasis between these texts? I'm just going to braid these things together for us and find some beautiful and edifying Um, insights from St. Thomas about the rites of the Mass. I thought maybe the best way to do this would be to divide it up according to the four causes. So final cause, efficient cause, formal cause, material cause. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you probably have heard those words and know something about that. Um, But basically the final cause is the end, the good, the goal, the thing you're striving for. The efficient cause is who's doing it, who's bringing it about. The formal cause is what's the order, the organization, the internal logic to the thing. And then the material cause, just what's the stuff? What's it made, what is it made of? So three of these, I'm going to give you, I hope, a pretty thorough treatment of. And the last one, the material cause, which here might be the most fun, just going through the mass kind of bit by bit. What are each of these pieces and what does St. Thomas say about them? I suspect that's going to end up getting short shrift on our podcast today, just because that would take, you know, many hours in a full lecture series to go all the way through. But we'll do our best, and I hope at least to whet your appetite on this. And then, you know, why not go dive into St. Thomas himself and see what he has to say. So let's start with the final cause. This is always a good idea, because if you know anything about Aristotelian philosophy, you know that the final cause is actually the first of the causes in the order of intention. So first in intention, last in execution. 
And here, when we're talking about the ritual of the Mass, the whole liturgy of the Mass, obviously, in one way, the final cause of this is divine worship. We're worshiping God. That's what all of this is ultimately for. But the sacraments are also signs, right? The sacraments are signs that affect what they signify. So when St. Thomas wants to talk about final cause in the case of the, the liturgy, in the case of the liturgical rituals, really what he's talking about is what are the significations? Every time the priest does something or says something, what is he trying to signify um, in terms of our overall faith? And St. Thomas takes all of the things that the Mass signifies, and there's a lot of them, and he reduces all of these back to three headings. So the significations of the Mass, St. Thomas says, reduce to three. The passion of Christ, so the rites of the Mass signify the passion of Christ. The disposition of the Church toward this sacrament. And then finally, the devotion and reverence that are due to this sacrament. So I'm going to give you a quick example of each of those. And I thought I would take these examples not from the words of the Mass, but from the gestures of the Mass, the actions of the Mass. So first I said that Christ's passion is one of the things signified. You've probably seen at Mass during the Eucharistic prayer, especially during the Roman canon, and I should say especially if you assist sometimes at um, the form formerly known as Extraordinary, um, you see the priest make a lot of signs of the cross during the Eucharistic prayer. Again, I'm gesturing with my hand, visual medium podcasting, just fantastic. But you know what the sign of the cross looks like. St. Thomas says that all of those signs of the cross over the bread and the wine or after the consecration, the body and blood of Christ, all of those signs of the cross stand for a different moment in the passion of Christ. So there's eight different sets in the Roman canon in the Eucharistic prayer of signs of the cross. And St. Thomas thinks that each of those sets corresponds to a different moment in the unfolding of Christ's passion, which of course culminates on the cross itself, which is why the sign of the cross. So the first set of signs of the cross, I think corresponds to Christ being sold. And then you get a set that corresponds to Christ's prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. You get another set for his scourging, another set for his five wounds when he's crucified, etc. Um, so all of those are for signifying the passion of Christ and kind of cool. St. Thomas thinks that the consecration itself fits in, in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer, right where the last supper fits in to the unfolding of the passion. Okay. Second kind of signification, the disposition of the church. So here, the example I thought to use is what's called the fraction rite. If you don't know that term, the fraction rite, that's fraction just means breaking, right? So literally, that's when the priest takes his host, the priest host that he consecrates at mass. And before he receives Holy Communion, this is around the time of the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, the priest takes that host and he breaks it. He breaks it into three pieces, and one of those pieces, a little fraction, a little break, broken off uh, sliver, goes into the chalice. And St. Thomas says that those three pieces, the one in the chalice and the two that stay outside the chalice, those correspond to the three different parts of the church. Not quite the distinction we're used to, right, with church triumphant, church suffering, and church militant, um, but close. So he says that the little piece that goes into the chalice is those saints in heaven who already have their bodies, who are already resurrected. And he says that would correspond to Christ himself, of course, to our Blessed Mother, who was assumed body and soul into heaven. 
And St. Thomas says, and any other saints who already have their bodies back. Um, I like that he's kind of agnostic about, you know, is St. Joseph, is St. John the Baptist, is pick your favorite saint. Have they already been rewarded with an early resurrection of the body? Don't know. Kind of cool. And then the other two pieces correspond. One of them is for us, all of us who are um, here still on earth. And then the last piece of the host that's been broken corresponds to those separated souls, whether they're in purgatory or in heaven, um, but who are awaiting their bodies and who will be glorified on the last day. Um, great. Okay. The third signification, the third final cause here, right? I said is the devotion and the reverence due to this sacrament. And what St. Thomas talks about here, one of the examples he gives is the priest keeping his fingers together. So the thumb and the index finger of the priest more visual gestures from me, incredibly helpful. Um, picture someone putting his thumb and his index finger together. You'll know what I'm talking about. The priest does this all the way from the consecration of the precious body until after Holy Communion, when the priest's fingers can be cleansed, can be abluted, can be washed. Um, and the reason for that is precisely this. It's to signify the devotion and reverence that are due to the Holy Eucharist. Because if the priest touching what was bread gets a particle, a crumb, a little tiny bit on his fingers and it sticks to that and he consecrates that and it becomes the body of Christ, he doesn't want to lose that. And more importantly, well, maybe not more importantly, but uh, the point here for us is he wants to signify, he wants to show that he doesn't want to lose that. So traditionally, and you still see this with a lot of priests today, um, those two fingers are kept together. So those are what are called, right, the canonical digits, which just means the fingers that were required by canon law for a priest to be ordained a priest in the first place. If you were missing your thumb or index finger, you would need a very special dispensation in order to have become a priest at all for a lot of church history, because those are the fingers you need to hold the host to confect the sacrament. Fine. Um, I'm going to give a little side tangent. I don't know if I should because there's enough confusing material here already, but that just made me think of, um, you know, St. Isaac Jogues, who was the great Jesuit missionary and martyr to the Americans, the native peoples to whom he came to be a missionary, to whom he came um, to bring them to Christ, uh, at one point were so thankful for his missionary efforts that they chewed off his fingers. Um, and so he then had to write to Rome for special permission to continue to say Mass. And the Pope, knowing who he was and so grateful to him for his saintly efforts to save souls for Christ, gave an extraordinary permission that St. Isaac Jogues could continue to say Mass even without his canonical digits. Great. Okay, final cause, check. Let's move on to the efficient cause of the sacred liturgy, according to St. Thomas. So, of course, when we're talking about the sacrament itself, the efficient cause, the first efficient cause, meaning the power behind the sacrament, right, is God. We know that. Every sacrament is really God, who is the one behind it all. So when you go to confession and you have your sins forgiven, who first and foremost is forgiving your sins? God. However, we Catholics believe that God uses instruments, uses his own creatures to bring about these effects. And it's actually really important for us that he do this, not because he needs them, but because we need them. Because if God directly caused these effects, but without using any creatures to bring them about, I would never know about it. I wouldn't see it. 
I wouldn't hear it. I wouldn't touch it and taste it and feel it. And so God uses these created instruments in order to communicate his grace to me in a way that I can actually appreciate and receive, right? So here, what we're talking about in terms of the efficient causes of the Mass, St. Thomas is talking about the instruments that God will use to enact this whole rite. The first instrument that God uses in the sacraments is Christ's sacred humanity, is Jesus's human nature. But Jesus's human nature then uses his ministers, uses the sacraments in order to communicate things to us now that he's ascended into heaven. And so there's three kinds of instrumental agents that St. Thomas Aquinas will talk about in terms of the execution of Holy Mass. And these are the three different speakers who are responsible, or kinds of speakers, who are responsible for the words of the liturgy. Of course, for the sacrament itself, just for effecting the consecration, that's just the priest. But in terms of the overall rite, St. Thomas says there's three different groups. There's the priest, there are the ministers, and here St. Thomas has in mind the deacon, the subdeacon, sometimes lectors. We'll talk about when you'd have lectors and why in St. Thomas's day. Uh, and then finally, the third group is the choir. So the priest, the ministers, and the choir. And the distinction that St. Thomas notices for who says what and why you can't just switch all these parts around and jumble them up, St. Thomas says, no, there's, there's a logic to this. The priest is responsible for pronouncing all the words of the Mass that have to do with mediation between God and man. Um, because the priest, right, is the mediator between God and man. That's why we ordain priests, is as mediators. And Christ, who is himself the one high priest, the great high priest, is in his incarnate humanity, the mediator between God and man. So the priest is responsible for all those words that would go in between us and God, as it were. The ministers, the ministers are responsible for those words of the mass that pertain to things that came to us originally through the ministry of others, which is a fancy way of saying the Bible. The ministers are responsible for reading the Bible at mass because the Bible, the scriptures, came to us through ministry, the ministry rite of the prophets, of the apostles, of the evangelists, of the other sacred writers. All of these are God's word being made known to us originally through some kind of minister. And so rather than have the priest read these parts of the mass, different ministers are responsible for them because the priest in a certain way stands in the place of God in the mass. And the ministers have a kind of mediating relationship even between the priest and us. Um, and so the scriptures are given to them. The choir, on the other hand, so the third group, the third speakers, the third separated instrumental agent causes, according to the confusing way that I've chosen to structure this podcast, um, the choir is responsible for those words of the mass that pertain to the people. Um, so it's not always the case that the people are singing everything with the choir. There's some things that we sing with the choir. There's some things that the choir sings on their own. But even when they're singing alone, they're singing for all of us. Um, so they're kind of our mouthpiece in the liturgy. And real quick before leaving this section, um, I thought I'd say something about a little distinction that St. Thomas notices here in the words given to some of these speakers. So when the priest speaks at the Mass, Sometimes he speaks out loud, and sometimes he speaks silently. So some things we hear, 
especially, you know, in the year of our Lord, 2023, when churches have sound systems, which I am a huge fan of. Let me tell you, I hope sarcasm is communicated via microphone. Um, But whether there's a microphone or not, the priest can be heard sometimes and not heard other times because he's speaking sotto voce. He's speaking secreto. He's speaking very, very silently to where the words are for God alone. And St. Thomas says, again, there's a rhyme and reason to this. When the priest speaks out loud, that's when the priest is speaking on behalf of all of us. He's speaking kind of as our representative, but saying something that pertains to all of us. So for example, the collect, the opening prayer of the mass, when the priest asks for whatever graces he's asking for there, he's really speaking for all of us. We're all asking for those graces. Um, so our words, all of our petition is put in onto his lips. But when it comes to things said secretly or silently, St. Thomas says that those are the parts of the Mass that don't pertain to all of us. It's not just that all of us can't talk at once and have it be, you know, melodious and understood. Um, It's rather that, no, we wouldn't be saying these things. Only the priest is responsible for saying these things because they pertain to the office for which he was ordained. So these are things like the offering, the oblation, um, and then also the consecration. So everything surrounding the offertory, surrounding the consecration, historically was said silently, because this pertains to the priest's own office just between him and God. Yeah, it's for our sake, for sure. The priest is up there for us. And as St. John Henry Newman said, he'd look pretty silly without us. But he's there exercising his own proper office, and that's why the words are just whispered to God. The choir, on the other hand has two different kinds of words as well. There's the things that they say all on their own, and then there's the things that the choir says, but with the priest first intoning them. So the things that the choir says all on their own, right, are things like the introit, the offertory, the communion, you know, these chants. Uh, We had some great ones for Pentecost last weekend, but I'm not going to put you through the pain of having me sing the Factus Est Repente on this podcast. Look it up. Um... Those are things that the choir says alone. But there are some other things that the choir says with the priest first intoning it. So this rate would be the Gloria, the priest intones the Gloria, and the Credo, the Creed. The priest intones the Creed. He sings the first line, and then the choir joins in, and usually the people join in too. So St. Thomas is familiar with that practice as well, that for the Gloria and the Credo, all of us would sing together with the choir for their parts. Um... The difference, St. Thomas says, is that when the priest intones it, that signifies in a special way that what's about to be sung was divinely revealed. So the priest stands for God there, and he's making this revelation. So with the Gloria, that's the revelation of heaven, of our supernatural destiny, which we couldn't know about if God hadn't told us. And so Gloria in excelsis Deo, this is about the glory on high in heaven. God's glory, right? But we're going to share it, and that's the point. The credo, the creed, is also something that had to be revealed to us by God because all of these truths go beyond what we could know without revelation. Um, So there's no way that we could have found out that, um, for example, Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, um, etc., if not for the revelation of God to us about this in Christ and the action of his Holy Spirit in us that we might believe. 
So the priest intoning those signifies this came from God. Cool. Okay. Final cause check. I think efficient cause check. Let's move from those external causes to now talking a little bit about the internal causes of the Holy Mass. So this is the formal cause, right, which is the order, the organization, what in Latin we call the ratio, and then the material cause, as I say, just the stuff that it's made out of. The formal cause here is interesting. St. Thomas starts by drawing on Dennis the Areopagite, Dionysius the Areopagite, and talking about how all things come forth from God, and then all things turn and go back to God. So this is a big, you know, Christian Neoplatonic kind of way of looking at all of reality. There's God himself, and everything else comes from him and returns to him. Um, This is in Dionysius, this is in St. Augustine, this is certainly in St. Thomas. Uh, I mean, this is in scripture several times over. Um, But for St. Thomas, this gives the kind of logic of the table of contents to the mass. So everything coming forth from God and then returning to God, St. Thomas says the liturgy comes full circle too. And the beginning and the end kind of mirror each other. So St. Thomas divides up the whole mass into three. He says at the beginning, you have the preparation for the whole um, celebration to come. And then you have the celebration itself. And then you have Thanksgiving for that celebration right at the end. Um, So the beginning and the end mirror each other with, at the beginning, the introit and the collect, so the opening chant and the opening prayer. And then at the end, the communion antiphon and the post-communion prayer. So that's what's sung at communion and then the prayer of the priest at the end of the Mass. St. Thomas thinks it's deliberate that there's symmetry there because, again, liturgy coming full circle, exitus reditus is what we call this in theology or philosophy all things coming forth and returning. So St. Thomas divides the Mass that way. You've got this little piece at the beginning, you've got a huge piece in the middle, and then a little piece at the end. And within that, and again, this will be on the PDF that we'll post um, on the Josias for you to look at with this, but within that, St. Thomas divides this up even more. So within that little piece at the beginning, which St. Thomas calls the prayer, the oration, Um, He divides that first into a preparation for the prayer and then the prayer itself. And that prayer, again, is the collect, the opening prayer of the Mass. The preparation for that, he says, is three different things. There's the introit, the Kyrie, and the Gloria. And that's a preparation through devotion, in the case of the introit, through humility, in the case of the Kyrie, and through what he calls right intention, in the case of the Gloria. We'll talk more about those in a minute when we get into the material cause of the Mass and look at these more carefully one by one. Okay, the the whole middle part of the Mass, what he calls the celebration, he divides into three parts. The instruction, which today is what we might call the liturgy of the word. So this is sometimes Old Testament readings um, at like the Easter Vigil, for example. Um, The epistle, the gradual, the Alleluia or tract, the gospel, and the creed. Those six things, or potentially six things, depending on the Mass, come together to be this first part of the middle part, so the instruction, the liturgy of the word. After that, St. Thomas has the oblation, which is the word he uses for the offertory. And the offertory breaks into three parts too. 
It has the offertory antiphon that the choir sings. It has the offering itself when the priest makes an oblation of the bread and wine. And then the secret prayer, um, today often called the prayer over the gifts. So those three things come together for this little middle part called the oblation. And finally, within the big middle part, um, we have what St. Thomas calls the consummatio, the consummation, which is cool. So this is when everything becomes fulfilled. And so here you have the preface, the canon, or the Eucharistic prayer, and then the rites for the reception of Holy Communion. Now, all of these break down way further. Um, and again, check out the PDF. But rather than descending into the details in a way that I think might be kind of confusing in an oral medium, I'm going to pass through to the last section here, which is the Thanksgiving after Mass, which, like I say, for St. Thomas, corresponds to the beginning of Mass. So here you have just the communion antiphon and then the post-communion prayer. And that, again, is thanksgiving. It's giving thanks to God for what you've just received. So the whole overall structure of the Mass, all these things that are built around the consecration of the Holy Eucharist, are a preparation for that and then a giving thanks after that. And, you know, in a certain way, that's what our entire life is supposed to be, right? Everything in my life is looking forward to my next assisting at Holy Mass, and then giving thanks for my last assisting at Holy Mass. That's how St. Thomas would have us live. Uh, and that's reflected, he thinks, in these rites of the Mass. So it's interesting, one of the objections St. Thomas will have to field is, why do we have all this stuff? Weren't Christ's words good enough? He said, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood. Why do we need anything more than that? The priest could just do that and move on with it. Isn't an isn't it an insult to our Savior Jesus Christ that we don't let his words stand alone, but we think we have to gussy them up with, you know, this hour and a half right or whatever it is um, that gives a context to that? And St. Thomas says, look, there's no problem with Christ's words. Christ's words are completely sufficient to bring about the body and blood of Christ in this sacrament. In fact, St. Thomas even has the view that some theologians will reject, though he's right, I think he's right, that a priest could even walk into a bakery and say the words, this is my body, intending to consecrate everything in that bakery, and in two seconds, you could have a room full of the Holy Eucharist. Um, that would be terrible. That priest would have just sinned very, very, very mortally. Um, but it would have worked, so there's no problem with Christ's words. What St. Thomas says is that Christ's words are so powerful that they're bringing about something so important that we need a lot of other words, not for the sake of the consecration, but for the sake of our hearts, not for the sake of this mass being valid, but for the sake of this mass being fruitful for all of us. You need all these other words because we can't walk straight off the street and have the devotion we need for what's going to happen there. So there's a very kind of human... Um, merciful view that St. Thomas takes. He knows that we're distracted. He knows that it takes time for us to tune out what we were doing before. And hopefully by the time the consecration rolls around, we're actually ready to pray well and give our hearts to God. Sorsum corda, lift up your hearts. Um, and so for St. Thomas, all of the rest of this, he says, all you need for the sacrament itself, all you need for its being is the words of institution. 
but for its well-being, for it to be not just period, but in a good way for us, you need this whole liturgical complement of the Mass. All right. So that's three of our four causes. Final, efficient, formal. Let's start to go through this just piece by piece. Um, but before we do that, I want to give you a break from the sound of my voice and let Joe talk for a minute. So, Producer Joe, what's going on? Yeah, so what you were just saying um, on the question of all the words of the right, if I'm remembering that right uh, correctly, I should say, uh, that's in that's earlier in the Tertia Pars when he when St. Thomas is speaking on the right of baptism. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So he talks about this in a couple places. Um, there's also right before he talks about baptism, he has the whole treatise uh, in the Tertia Pars on the sacraments in general. So St. Thomas likes to treat common things first and then particular things because otherwise you just end up repeating yourself, um, which by the way is the reason at the beginning of the Summa that St. Thomas first treats God's existence and simplicity and goodness and perfection um, at, at first before talking about the Trinity, uh, the Father and then the Son and then the Holy Spirit. Because if he didn't do that, he'd end up just repeating himself. Because he'd have to talk about the existence and simplicity and goodness and perfection of the Father, then do it again for the Son, etc. So before St. Thomas talks about each of the sacraments in particular, and this is a kind of new thing, this is a recent thing in the tradition of the church in St. Thomas's day, he talks about just sacraments in general. And there he talks about what you need for the sacrament just to make one happen, and then what the church gives us um, for enacting those sacraments that goes beyond strict necessity. Um, and then you're right, this difference between necessary ad esse for being and necessary ad bene esse for well-being comes up there in the treatment of baptism um, just before the the treatment of the Holy Eucharist. Well, that's not true. There's one in between there with confirmation. Question 72 is just confirmation. Um, but yeah, so that comes just before where we are right now. Yeah, I just want to hone in on that a little bit because it's it's just such an important distinction the one with well-being and the one that's necessary that has to be made in these discussions on liturgy. Uh, very often when you get into debates or arguments about the liturgy, you hear people say, oh, I'm there for the Eucharist, as if nothing else matters. That's clearly not what the church thinks and why she invented a whole rite that focuses on, on salvation history and represents it on the altar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's something simultaneously a little bit gross and kind of utilitarian and transactional about that view that like just give me my holy eucharist vending machine um in out on with life got to eat some jesus or something like this um so there's something on the one hand a little bit like crude and material and almost superstitious about that um on the other hand it, it kind of combines two opposite errors. So one is that, which is like a very low error. There's also a kind of high error in that, which is I think it mistakes us for angels. To think that all you need is the thing itself um, right. is to think that we're not what we are, which is animals. We are rational animals. We are, thanks be to God, infused with grace and made capable of the enjoyment of God himself. But we are nevertheless animals. 
the kinds of things that have been infused with grace and made capable of enjoying God are things that come to know by touching stuff, by looking at stuff. And so if all I needed was this kind of infusion of grace and you could just, you know, get a quick precious blood jab or something uh, at a drive through at church on your way to work in the morning, um, that would make it out that we're a lot better at knowing and loving than in fact we are. Because that's just not enough for us. We actually need a great deal more than that in order for us to be able to connect with this as the kinds of things that we are. Great. Thanks for touching on that. Sweet. Um, all right. So with the time we've got left here, I'm going to just start going through the rites of the mass here. I'm not going to finish. Um, but at least for the beginning of mass here, I'll be able to give you a little bit of a taste of the sorts of things that St. Thomas says about what's going on here in the different moments in the mass. And I may pick and choose and not go through absolutely everything so that I can just sort of give you some fun facts that, um, yeah, I hope will help you. They've helped me in my participation, my active participation, right? Um, my participation with my whole heart in the liturgy of Holy Church. So let's start at the beginning of the Mass with the introit. So again, I said earlier, for St. Thomas, the introit is a preparation for the collect through devotion. And the reason he says that the introit, which is what the choir sings right at the beginning of Mass, right? The reason that that increases my devotion is that it's taken from some text that has something to do with this feast or whatever mass we're celebrating. So, you know, if we're celebrating St. Ursula and her companions, it's going to be some text that pertains to virgin martyrs. If we're celebrating St. Lawrence, it's going to be some text that pertains to a martyr. If we're celebrating... Um, St. Christopher, it will be a text about confessors, something like this. Um, and that gets me excited is basically the point. It's kind of pumping me up, not in a crude, you know, uh, emotional praise and worshipy kind of way necessarily, but it is supposed to be setting my heart aflame for what's coming next. Now, St. Thomas thinks that the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, the Psalter, is really, really important here. Um, because he learned from the Areopagite that in a certain way, the Psalter is the best book of the Bible because the Areopagite says every other teaching of scripture is also contained in the Psalter, but it's transposed up now. So whereas in the other books, it was there as prophecy or as history or as moral exhortation, um, whatever the case may be, now that it's found its way into the Psalms, all those same teachings are there, but they've been elevated to the laudatory genre, which is to say, now they're praise. It's the same things, but now sung to God as praise. And so St. Thomas thinks that the Psalter is really important for the introit. You'll notice that almost every Mass just has a psalm for its introit. But St. Thomas says, even in those few times a year, when relatively few times a year, when the introit isn't taken from the psalms, it's still paired with a psalm. So today we have a psalm verse with every introit. Um, I think in St. Thomas's day, they actually just chanted an entire psalm at that point. Um, but some examples of that, right, would be like rorate. You've heard of rorate masses during Advent. Um, the introit rorate is taken from, I believe, Isaiah. Um, 
but it's not from the Psalms, but it's paired with a Psalm. Or if you go to a funeral, Requiem, right? Requiem Eternum. That introit is not from a Psalm. Um, it's a prayer asking for God to grant eternal rest to the deceased, but we pair it with a Psalm. Um, likewise, Christmas, um, Christus Natus Est, Christ is born, obviously, not a Psalm. Um, but paired with the psalm. So St. Thomas thinks that those psalms and that mode of praise, us praising God here to start the Mass, gets our hearts um, fired up, excited, aflame for him. He came to set the world on fire and how he wishes it were already ablaze, right? Okay, the second preparation here at the beginning is the Kyrie, which I said was a preparation through humility. And if you are familiar with the virtue of mercy or the divine attribute of mercy, the divine mercy, right? We think of St. Faustina. If you're familiar with mercy, you know that mercy is for the miserable. Someone who is doing great in every regard doesn't need mercy. So mercy is for those of us who are in some way miserable. And so we come in the Kyrie begging for divine mercy by proclaiming our misery. And it's our humility that makes that possible. So we bow down and tell God, have mercy on me. I need your mercy. Um, in St. Thomas's day, this Kyrie was always ninefold. So three Kyrie eleisons, three Christe eleisons, three Kyrie eleisons. And you can imagine um, a good medieval man like St. Thomas, he has a lot of fun with the numerology of all of these things. The nine here, he'll connect with a number of different things. He'll connect it with the nine choirs of angels. He'll connect it with um, sets of different sins and vices that we might be um, calling out for help against. But three sets of three, I bet you can guess the main thing that he thinks this number is about. And that's the most blessed trinity. So the three, 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 he thinks signifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what's really cool is he thinks that this is also a chance for the liturgy to work in what's called the doctrine in Latin of circumincession, circumincesio, or in Greek, the doctrine of perichoresis. Two big old words that just mean that each of the three persons of the Trinity are also in one another. So the Father isn't just in himself, but is also in the Son and is in the Holy Spirit. And that's true for all three of the persons and their relations with all of the persons, um, which means that the ninefold Kyrie first invokes a person in himself and then invokes the person in relation to the other two. So St. Thomas thinks that really what's going on there when we say Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison at the beginning is we're invoking the Father in himself and then the Father in the Son and the Father in the Holy Spirit. And then we get the Son in himself and the Son in the Father, etc. You can finish out the nine in your own imagination, I'm sure. But it's a beautiful way right at the beginning of Mass that a really profound theological truth and doctrine, St. Thomas thinks, is expressed, not necessarily taught to us by the Church. There's not the same didactic function. Uh, the liturgy itself may not communicate that if you don't already know it. But for those of us who have entered deeply into the mysteries of God, the liturgy gets to be an expression and a reaffirmation of those and an occasion outside the liturgy for us to teach people about God by drawing on the liturgy. Just as an aside, uh, you had mentioned earlier uh, in your conversation about the Gloria Credo 
that the uh, that the people would join in with the choir, and Saint Thomas was aware of this. Uh, was any of that present for the Kyrie, um, alternating between lines in the ninefold Kyrie, in Saint Thomas's day? It's an interesting question. I don't know, and it may be that we don't know what the practice was with that, but he doesn't mention it as an example in either place. So the things he talks about the choir singing alone are all propers of the mass, and the things that he contrasts those with are the things that the priest intones. So you're right. I've had this question too with the Kyrie, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei. Um, who all is singing that in St. Thomas's Day? And of course, this is before polyphony. Um, so we're in a single voice with chant at most of these masses. Um, I suspect that the people are singing along with those the same way they'd be singing along with the Credo and the Gloria. Um, but that's a bit of speculation on my part. So I'm not sure. And it may also be that that was not rubrical and kind of varied one place to another, just as today, obviously, we still have some variation with how these things are carried on in different parishes. You go some places to mass and everyone sings everything, uh, which is great. And sometimes actually as a parish prepares to sing everything and does what they need to do to uh, teach the people how to participate vocally in that way. And you go to other places where opening your mouth, even to say, amen, everyone around you is going to turn and shush. Um, based on my descriptions, I think you can imagine which of those I have a preference for, but anyway. Yeah. And I mean, not to detract further from the conversation, uh, the rubrical question in St. Thomas's day is an interesting one too. We don't actually know what missile he might've been looking at. Yeah, this is a really good point. So this is a big question in, as I say, not many people are working on St. Thomas on the liturgy, but those in the past hundred years who have worked on this have wrestled with this question of what is St. Thomas describing exactly? Because he's a Dominican. The Dominicans have their own liturgy, and over the course of St. Thomas's life, it got solidified. Um, cool story, actually. Yesterday, um, I got to assist, I got to be an acolyte for a Dominican solemn high mass, Dominican rite solemn high mass here in Rome for a friend of mine, a newly ordained Dominican priest. Um, beautiful rite. I had been to Dominican rite high masses before, but I'd never been involved in one. And because their rite does not have an MC, a master of ceremonies, the acolytes actually sort of run the show, which was a lot of pressure for a rite that I had never had anything to do with before. Um, but it's a distinct rite from the Roman rite. And that means that there should be signs if St. Thomas were talking about the missile he's actually using every day that would let us know this is Dominican liturgy. But actually, some of the ones we would expect to find are not there. Um, I won't descend too much into the details of this, but just to say, yeah, it doesn't seem like St. Thomas is just commenting on the rites that the friars preachers used in the 13th century. Um, however, it's also hard to narrow it down and say, ah, they're using exactly this missile because the Roman rite was also not a monolithic thing at the time. Um, one suggestion is that maybe St. Thomas wasn't really looking at a missile at all, but was looking at the commentarial tradition on the liturgy that preceded him. And so, for example, I mentioned earlier that fraction rite, the breaking of the host into three parts. I didn't say this um, just because I didn't want to add confusion, but now I'll add some confusion. Um, the weirdness of that part of the breaking into three and having them signify three different things is that the rite St. Thomas is commenting on has the priest do three different things with those. 
which is no longer true. Um, one of them goes into the chalice, but two of them are consumed by the priest. And so you might think when you're reading it, oh, this has changed since St. Thomas's day to today. Um, because what St. Thomas says is one piece goes into the chalice, one piece is eaten by the priest, and the third piece stays on the altar until the end of Mass. Um, but actually, after St. Thomas describes all of this, and it's the piece, by the way, that stays on the altar until the end of Mass that he says connects with the souls in purgatory and the saints in heaven who don't have their bodies yet because they're united with Christ in the tomb, which is what's symbolized by the host on the altar. Um, and so they're waiting for their bodies from the tombs. Um, but after St. Thomas has gone through all that, he then says, of course, this rite is no longer done this way today, meaning in his day. So actually he's been commenting on a practice that doesn't even exist that I guess he just found in other liturgical commentators from earlier periods. And that became the kind of stable thing that all of these authors of expositiones mise, all of these authors of, um, particular treatments of the rites of the mass had just gotten used to talking about. But honestly, I'm repeating something I read in one dissertation one time, so I don't really have a strong view on how best to think about this. But you're right to raise the question of what mass is this? Um, and maybe one day I will be able to tell you. But that is not this day. Okay, let's look at the Gloria now. So the Gloria, St. Thomas says, is a preparation for the collect through right intention. So again, remember the introit, the Kyrie, and the Gloria are all just getting our hearts ready for the collect, for the opening prayer. So everything until the opening prayer has been getting us ready to pray that well. So the Gloria does that by setting our hearts on heaven. It fixes our eyes on the end. Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. Um, St. Thomas here does not really go through all the words of the Gloria, but what he does do is try to figure out why don't only some masses get this? Because you'll notice when you go to mass, every mass has an introit, every mass has a Kyrie, not every mass has a Gloria. And so St. Thomas has to ask the question of why today and not yesterday? And the answer he gives is that actually not every mass is concerned directly with heavenly glory. Of course, every Mass, you know, participating at Mass any time will conduce to heavenly glory. You go to Mass on, you know, the most mournful day of the year, or actually not Mass, on Good Friday, right? And that conduces to your heavenly glory. But you're not looking at heavenly glory in the same way that you are, for example, on Easter or on a great solemnity of a great saint or something like this. So St. Thomas distinguishes it this way. He says that if the Mass is about something which would make it wrong to focus too explicitly on heavenly glory. For example, penance or mourning. In those cases, we don't have a Gloria. And so you'll notice, right, during Lent, no Gloria, penance. During a funeral, no Gloria. Instead, mourning, rites of mourning, wearing black, giving us a liturgical context for grief and hopefully making that grief effective, right? But the Gloria would be out of place there. Okay, so those three things having prepared us for the collect, the priest then turns around, because he's facing the altar, right? Together with the people, facing God. He turns around and says, the Lord be with you, Dominus Vobiscum. This is cool. St. Thomas at this point kind of zooms out to 100,000 feet or whatever, flies up and looks down and says, 
this is going to happen five times during the course of the Mass. The priest is going to turn around and face the people like this five times over the course of the Mass. Why? Well, think about it this way, St. Thomas says. The priest is alter Christus. He's another Christ. He bears the person of Christ in this Mass. He's Christ's high priest. He is participating in the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. You get it. He manifests himself to the people. He turns around and shows the people his front, his face, five times. St. Thomas thinks that this is a kind of mystagogical um, expression, liturgical expression, of the five resurrection appearances of Christ on Easter Sunday. Ooh, let's see if I can remember what these five are. So St. Thomas lists these. The first is to Mary Magdalene. The second is to St. Peter. The third is to the women. The fourth is to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which St. Thomas places on Easter Sunday itself. And finally, on the evening of Easter Sunday, to all the disciples gathered together in the upper room. So the five turnings of the priest, St. Thomas thinks, are meant to remind us of Christ's resurrection appearances on that day. But, St. Thomas says, even though the priest only turns around five times, he actually greets the people like this seven times. Because there are two points in the Mass when the priest will greet the people without turning around. One of them is during the preface dialogue. So before the preface, before the Eucharistic prayer, the priest will say, Dominus Fobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo, sorsum corda, habemus ad dominum, etc. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. I hope I have the current translation of these things right. I'll be honest, it's not super fresh in my memory. Um, but... The point is that at that moment, the priest greets the people, the Lord be with you, but doesn't turn. And the same thing happens at peace, at the pox. The priest says, pox domini sit, I can't talk, pox domini sit semper vobiscum. I swear my Latin accent isn't actually that bad, but like with Italian for me, it's very hard to pass quickly between two languages and get your accent right. So there you go. Um, at that moment too, because the priest has the Holy Eucharist in his hands, standing over the altar, he's not going to turn around. So St. Thomas says, why does he greet the people this way seven times? And the answer that St. Thomas gives is, what is the priest doing when he greets the people? He is, in the person of Christ, sending good things to them, right? And what are the seven good things that Christ sends to us? Well, St. Thomas says, it's the sevenfold grace of the Holy Spirit that he breathes out upon us. So these seven greetings of the priest are a liturgical reminder of, expression of, confirmation in the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the priest then, while praying the collect, of course, raises his hands. So what we call the orons position, the praying position, which goes all the way, all the way back to the early church. We have all kinds of... Um, wall paintings and things of early Christians assuming this posture. The priest assumes that posture during the prayers of the Mass. And St. Thomas draws on a couple texts from Scripture. One, I believe somewhere from a prophet saying, lift up your hands and hearts together to God. So it's this external manifestation of what's going on with our hearts within us, right? But he also, and I thought this was cool, he, he mentions Moses and the battle when, when Moses would keep his hands up the Israelites would be conquering, but when he put his arms down, they'd be defeated. And so, of course, then, you know, 
is it Joshua and Caleb, uh, who hold his arms up so that the Israelites will continue to conquer. So the priest has his arms up so that this prayer will be effective and all of us there will be conquering in this spiritual warfare. Okay, I am getting close to the time when I'm going to have to bail. And if you have kept with me this long, God bless you. Um, I'm sure you're ready to bail. So I thought I would go through real quick and just give you a couple more highlights. I'm going to jump around the mass just to say a couple cool things that St. Thomas shares. Um, and then, yeah, we will wrap up from there in just a few minutes. Um, I'm going to jump all the way forward real quick to the Sanctus. So holy, 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 right? Um, I think this is super beautiful. St. Thomas does what he often does. He says, what are these texts from? Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Plenis Uncelia Terra, Gloria Tua, Hosanna in Excelsis, Benedictus qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in Excelsis. That's two different pieces of scripture that have been mashed together. One of them, Sanctus, 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 is from Isaiah. And do you know who says it? The seraphim. The highest angels in heaven are saying, holy, 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 while beholding God. The second part of that, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in Excelsis, who's saying that? The kids on Palm Sunday, the pueri hebreorum, the children of the Hebrews. That's really interesting. What this part of the Mass has done is taken the highest member of the created intellectual hierarchy, the seraphim, and connected their words with the words of basically the lowest rung of the intellectual hierarchy, which is man, and even within man, the mouths of these Hebrew babes, these little kids, greeting Jesus as he comes into the holy city. And St. Thomas thinks that that's really an important confession for us of Christ's two natures, the high and the low, because the Sanctus 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 is aimed at the divine nature, but the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is aimed at Christ in his sacred humanity entering into Jerusalem. And it's cool that it's the highest and lowest in the intellectual hierarchy that make this praise together in some way in the Mass now, because what's the hypostatic union really about? What's the incarnation about? It's about God, the highest there is, descending to our human nature, of course, remaining unchanged in in himself, but condescending to assume a human nature from this lowest rung of the intellectual hierarchy and draw it up to himself. I wish you could see my hand motions, of course. They're just unbelievably brilliant in this moment. Um, Drawing upward. No. Um, But that's really beautiful, right? That uh, the highest and lowest combine in the Sanctus to praise the high and low in our Savior. Okay, I'm going to give you just one last really cool um, insight that St. Thomas gave me and then send you on your way. And this is a kind of global consideration of the Mass as a whole. St. Thomas asked the question, what languages do we use in this liturgy? Greek, right? Kyrie eleison. Hebrew, Amen, Alleluia, Hosanna, Sabaoth. And then in St. Thomas's day, of course, everything else in Latin. And even today, the, you know, typical, um, in the sense of editio typica, version of the current rite, still Latin. 
still the official language of our Roman rite. Why these three languages, St. Thomas says? Is it just an accident of history that these three are what managed to kind of get sifted through by the church? And St. Thomas doesn't think so. He thinks this is very providentially arranged. Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, all coming together in this liturgy that, as I've said, is for the sake of signifying the passion of Christ, which culminated on the cross. So St. Thomas says how beautifully fitting, because what three languages are present on the cross of Christ? Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. On a titulus, on a title card hung above the head of Christ on the cross, that is actually about a 20-minute walk from where I'm sitting right now recording this podcast. And you can still come venerate it at Santa Croce in Jerusalem anytime you like. Incredible that even the languages themselves end up referring back and reminding us of what this is all for. Christ's cross, which saves us. His body offered for us on that cross, offered for us on this altar. So this has been, as I said, a bit of a deranged episode. Um, I don't know how much crossover our listenership has with the rewatchables, but I was thinking of the time that Bill Simmons decided he would record a solo pod when he covered Castaway in honor of Tom Hanks being stranded on an island. So that is very much the energy I have attempted to bring you in this hour and change. I apologize sincerely, but I hope you walked away with something that, yeah, can increase your love for the liturgy because, um, If I am a deranged fool, St. Thomas Aquinas most certainly is not. We'll end it there. Joe Barnas, thank you for being here and for all your work to produce this episode. Thanks to Jonathan Colbreth for our music. Thank you to all of our listeners, and thank you especially to our good benefactors on Patreon. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Josias Podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to patreon.com slash josias to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog, Use at Justitium, and find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. <laughs>